Oh Lord, we magnify You. We rejoice in You, O God, our Savior. For You have regarded the low estate of Your handmaiden, the church in every age. You have done great things for us, and holy is Your name, O mighty God. Remember Your mercy to us in the name of Christ. For in Him we plead the new and eternal covenant. For in Him the promises made to Abraham have been fulfilled. Remember Your covenant once again, as You have from generation to generation. For Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Father ever blessed, Son ever praised, Holy Spirit ever adored. One God now and always. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is Revelation 18, and I'm going to read the final verses of that chapter uh, before we look at it. And a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the land. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we pray for your blessing on us as we consider this portion of your word. We pray that we would stand in fear of your judgments, stand in fear of your coming, and that we would repent as the kingdom of God comes to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two times in Jesus' messages to the churches of Asia, he warns them about two main sins. He warns them about porneia, immorality, or sexual immorality, and he warns them about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. In one message, he alludes to Balaam. In another message, he alludes to Jezebel, a queen of the northern kingdom, when Ahab was king of the northern kingdom. And he says that porneia, immorality, and eating meat sacrificed to idols puts you in the company of Balaam and Jezebel. And that's not company that you want to be in. Balaam was slaughtered along with others who invaded the camp of Israel and corrupted the camp. One of them was slaughtered by being impaled by the, two of them were slaughtered by being impaled by the priest Phineas. Jezebel ended badly too. Jezebel was trampled underneath the hooves of the horse of Jehu when he came to conquer Samaria. If you commit porneia, immorality, and if you eat meat sacrificed to idols, Jesus tells these churches, then you're going to end up like Balaam. You're going to end up like Jezebel. These two sins are important, significant sins throughout the Old Testament. There are some sins that defile the sanctuary, the house of God. But there are certain sins that defile the land, that make the land sick. 
so that the land becomes so sick that it vomits out the inhabitants of the land. That's what happened to the Canaanites. They defiled the land. They polluted the land. And eventually the land vomited them out. And the Lord is constantly warning Israel, don't do what the, what the Canaanites did. If you do, then you too will be vomited from the land. The sins that sicken the land are porneia, immorality, sexual immorality, idolatry, and the shedding of innocent blood. And Jesus is applying those same rules now to the early church, to the churches of Asia. He says that if you continue in these sins, if you continue in immorality, and if you continue in idolatry, then you will be spewed out of the church. Your lampstand will be taken away. In fact, Jesus warns the Laodiceans that he himself will vomit them out of his mouth. He's the true promised land of his people. But if his people commit sin and persist in sin, then Jesus will spew them out as the land spewed out the Canaanites and the land spewed out the Israelites into exile. We can understand why idolatry might be a temptation for the early Christians. They're under pressure from Rome. They're under pressure to conform to Roman standards. They're under pressure to conform to Roman religion. And all they have to do is participate in just in a minimal way in the sacrifice to the emperor. And then the Romans will leave them alone. With all that pressure, and with it, it seems very easy to relieve that pressure by engaging in idolatry. But why would porneia, why would sexual immorality be a temptation for early Christians? Why does Jesus have to warn them about that? One element of this might be that some Christians believed that they were so free from the law that they didn't have to obey any of God's commandments anymore. We're free from the law and therefore we can do what we like with our bodies. And there were some early Christian groups that said things like that. But in Revelation, that's not really the point of porneia, the idea of sexual immorality. We don't really understand why this is a temptation until we get to chapter 17 of Revelation. And there we're introduced to a porne, the Greek term for harlot, for prostitute. And the the porne, the harlot, is the one to whom those who commit porneia are attracted. They attach themselves to the harlot who is described as the harlot Babylon. Chapter 17 begins the third of the great visions in Revelation. You might remember from earlier sermons that Revelation is divided up into four great visions, each of them marked at the beginning with a reference to John being in the Spirit. In the Spirit, he sees Jesus as the Son of Man. In the Spirit, he's caught up into heaven, and he sees Jesus as the Lamb. In the Spirit, he's taken out into the wilderness and he sees the harlot Babylon. In the spirit, he's taken up on a mountain to see Jerusalem descend out of heaven. The first two of those visions are visions of Jesus as the Son of Man and as the Lamb. He's the new Adam. The second two visions are of a false Eve and the true Eve. And the harlot is the false Eve. Revelation moves within Genesis 2, you could say, from revelation of an unveiling of Adam, the new Adam, to an unveiling of a false Eve, Babylon, and then of the true Eve, Jerusalem. Who is this harlot city that's called Babylon? What is John referring to? What real world city does he have in mind? It might be Rome. And many readers of Revelation and many commentators on Revelation believe that it is Rome. 
After all, the harlot sits on many waters, and the sea is often associated with the Gentile world. The harlot rules over the kings of the earth. That sounds like Rome. The harlot sits on the back of a beast, and the beast has seven heads, which are identified as seven mountains, which might be intended to remind us of the seven hills of Rome. She drinks the blood of the saints, and we know that the Romans were persecutors of the early Christians. And she bears the name Babylon. Babylon was the name of the city that was the capital of the empire that conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the first temple, and took Israel off into exile. This is a, it all seems to fit. This looks like Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire that's also, that like the, like Babylon of old, is going to take over Jerusalem or take over the Christians and will be falling, uh, and will be collapsing before them. That can be, that can be a persuasive view of Revelation, but I think that's not correct. Babylon, I think, is not Rome. It's not some generic city. It's a specific city that existed in the first century. It's the great city, as John calls it in Revelation 18, a couple of times. It's Babylon the great, the great city, that's already been identified earlier in Revelation as the great city where our Lord was crucified. When John hears an account of the uh, witnesses, the two witnesses that go into the great city and are martyred, that city is described as being mystically or spiritually like Sodom and like Egypt but being the city where the Lord was crucified. That is the great city, according to Revelation 11, the story of the two witnesses. And the great city in chapters 17 and 18 is the same great city that we were introduced to several chapters earlier. John hasn't seen a new city. He's seeing the same city. Besides that, the cities that were called harlot cities throughout the Old Testament, were the city that was called the harlot city was primarily Jerusalem. There are a couple of exceptions, but by and large, when you read about a harlot city in the Old Testament, you're reading about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city that was in covenant with the Lord. Jerusalem was the city that was supposed to be faithful to her husband. Jerusalem was Zion, the bride. And that city, Jerusalem, became a harlot, went after other gods, went after, made alliances with other nations, as we heard in our Old Testament lesson today and many other places in the Prophets. Jerusalem is the harlot city. A harlot city is a city that's been in covenant with God and then turns from that covenant. That doesn't describe Rome. It does describe Jerusalem. Besides, Babylon is dressed like a priest. She's dressed in finery. She has jewels and pearls on her clothing. She has a gold crown on her head. She's clothed in purple and scarlet, which were expensive dyes and expensive materials in the ancient world. But the overall impression is not simply of wealth. She's dressed like a priest. She's a priestly city. She's a priestess city. The priest had gems on his breastplate as part of his clothing. He was clothed in clothing that had purple and scarlet woven into it. And he too had a crown on his head, a golden crown, that referred to the God to to whom he was devoted, to Yahweh, the Holy Holy to Yahweh, that's the phrase that's on the golden crown of the high priest. Harlot Babylon also has a crown, and it also bears the name of the God to whom she is devoted. It happens to be her own name, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. 
That's the God to whom she's devoted. That's the God to whom Jerusalem now is devoted. She's dressed like a priestess. She's going to die like a priest's daughter. A priest's daughter who committed harlotry in her father's house was not only stoned, but she had to be burned. That's what's going to happen to this harlot because this harlot is not any ordinary harlot city. This is the harlot city, Jerusalem. She does ride on the back of a beast that represents the Roman Empire, but we've seen this already in Revelation. We've seen an alliance between Jews and Gentiles ganging up on the church. She's supported by the Roman Empire in her war against the church. And she is the one. Jerusalem is the one. Jerusalem is the city that drinks down the blood of the saints. When we see her drinking uh, holy blood, we think immediately, we think immediately of Rome because we think of all the persecutions that took place in the early centuries of the church. But when John was writing, Rome was just beginning to notice the church. Rome was just beginning to persecute the church. But there is a city that had been drinking blood of saints and prophets for centuries. That's not Babylon or Nineveh or Tyre. That's Jerusalem. Jesus himself says this. We heard it in our gospel reading. Jesus says to you, Jerusalem will be charged all of the blood of all of the martyrs, beginning with Abel and going to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. All of that blood will be charged to you. And after Babylon falls, that blood is found in the harlot city, Babylon. Chapter 18 ends. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. That's almost a quotation from Matthew 23 where Jesus is talking about Jerusalem as the city that sheds blood. Babylon is not Rome. Babylon is not some generic pagan city. Babylon is the city of God that has been turned harlot, the bride of the Lord that is now indulging in harlotry and drinking the blood of the saints. Revelation 17 doesn't just reveal and unveil this harlot to us, but it describes her destruction. She's riding on the back of the beast, and the beast has horns, and those horns are going to turn against the harlot and are going to kill the harlot, strip her and kill her and burn her and consume her. Babylon is going to fall. And so we have at the beginning of chapter 18 this announcement from a heavenly angel. An angel comes from heaven announcing the fall of Babylon and calling on the inhabitants of Babylon to leave. It's another exodus. The martyrs made an exodus from this world into heaven earlier in Revelation. This is an exodus, a second exodus from Babylon. Come out. Don't be associated with her. Come out from that city so that you aren't consumed when she's destroyed. We hear the voice from heaven announcing the fall of Babylon. We hear the voice from heaven inviting the people of God to come out from Babylon and seek a new city, a better city, a heavenly city, the true bride, Jerusalem. We also hear other voices. We hear voices of the kings of the land. We hear the voices of the merchants that traded with Babylon. We hear voices of shipmasters that used to run ships, trading ships, from Babylon to other parts of the earth. And these are voices that are raised in lamentation. Why are they lamenting? We might say, well, 
they've been consorting with a harlot city, and now that harlot is no longer giving out her services. She's no longer in business. They're not going to. They're no longer going to be able to engage in their uh, in their uh, uh, their uh, infernal harlot business with the with the with the prostituted city. It's gone now, and they're lamenting that. That's certainly part of it. But if that's all that John intended to to uh, communicate to us, he overdid it. This is a very long chapter. You heard it read, so you know it's long. It's a long chapter with a lot of detail and a lot of different groups lamenting. Why so much space if all they're doing is lamenting over the lost services of a prostitute? Why would John give so much space to that? I think John has something else in mind. It's not just that they're lamenting over the fall of the city because they're now deprived of the city's services. They're lamenting over the fall of the city because they recognize that there is a just judgment on this city. Notice where they're standing. All of these groups, the kings of the land, the merchants, the shipmasters, all stand at a distance from the city. They're looking back at a city that's being destroyed, like Lot after he left Sodom. They've listened to the voice from heaven that's called them to come out. They've come out of the city, and now they're looking back at the city, and they're lamenting. And notice what they say. They say, alas, Babylon is falling, fallen. They talk about the judgment on Babylon. They don't say, dumb luck, Babylon's gone. They recognize that there is, that God's hand is in this. That some, that God has done something to Babylon. That Babylon has received what she deserves. They're not rejoicing like the saints are in heaven. But I don't think they're simply lamenting over the lost services of the harlot city. They're on their way out of Babylon toward Jerusalem, toward the new Jerusalem. And as they look back, they recognize that God came to Babylon and God judged Babylon. And that judgment was just. Chapter 18, I think, is the climax of one of the important threads of the book of Revelation. Back in the very first chapter, John quotes a couple of Old Testament passages that kind of set the trajectory for the whole story in Revelation. In Revelation 1-7, John quotes from Daniel 7. You shall see the Son of Man coming in His glory, coming with clouds. That's kind of a theme of Revelation. You're going to see the Son of Man coming with clouds. In Daniel 7, that's the Son of Man coming to heaven, ascending to heaven in clouds to receive his kingdom. When Revelation begins, that's already happened to Jesus. Jesus, as the Son of Man, has already received his kingdom. He's already in heaven. But what Revelation shows is the corporate Son of Man ascending on clouds and receiving the kingdom. The saints receiving the kingdom. The martyrs receiving the kingdom. Daniel 7, quoted at the beginning of the book, sets out the whole storyline about the suffering of the martyrs and their exaltation and the reception of the kingdom as the people of the Son of Man. That's one of the Old Testament passages that John quotes in chapter 1, verse 7. The other one is from Zechariah 12, where Zechariah predicts that they shall look on the one that they pierced and all the tribes of the land will mourn for him. Zechariah predicts a widespread mourning 
in the land. And as he describes this, he describes different groups that are mourning. The house of David is mourning. The Levites are mourning. Another group is mourning. All these different groups are mourning when they see the one that they've pierced. Well, where is that fulfilled in Revelation? Chapter 1 indicates that this is going to be an important storyline of Revelation. That somewhere along the line, there's going to be lamentation over the one whom they pierced. Where does that happen, if not in chapter 18? Chapter 18 is fulfilling what chapter 1, verse 7 indicates is a major theme of the book. The saints enter into the kingdom. They receive the kingdom that Jesus has already entered into. And also, the people of the land mourn. They don't see Jesus on the cross. What they do see is the harlot city drinking the blood of the saints and the judgment on that harlot city. And they begin to mourn. These, I think, are Jews coming out of Babylon, Jerusalem, seeking a new and better Jerusalem and lamenting over Jerusalem as, in fact, Jesus himself did. In our gospel lesson, we read not only about Jesus' prediction that all the blood will be charged to Jerusalem, but also Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. These kings and merchants and shipmasters are entering into the lament of Jesus over the fall of God's own city. So Christmas is nine days away. I bet you didn't expect to come to church and hear a sermon about a harlot. Your parents have something to explain to your kids when you get home. You're welcome. (laughs) You didn't expect a harlot. You expected a story about a virgin. You didn't expect beasts. About a baby in a manger. You didn't expect to come in here and learn about a destruction of a city. You want to hear about a birth. But if we don't understand this passage as an Advent passage, we don't understand Advent. Advent is about the coming of the Lord. And when we think of that, we think of Jesus in a manger coming to us to rescue us. He's so cute and cuddly. But God comes in all kinds of ways. Jesus comes in all kinds of ways. Jesus came in the flesh. The Son entered into our humanity to bear our curse and to bear our sin and to release us so that we could share in his eternal life. But Jesus keeps coming. And Jesus will keep coming until he comes again at the end to judge the living and the dead. Advent is not just about the incarnation. Advent reminds us of the many comings of the Lord and the Lord's commitment to keep coming until all harlot cities are destroyed, until all beasts are destroyed. He promises and he's committed to keep coming until Jerusalem fills the earth, until the new Jerusalem is identical to the new creation. This is an Advent passage. Because this is about the Lord coming to his creation, coming to his people, coming to humanity to vindicate the saints, to vindicate the martyrs, and to destroy their enemies. And so in this passage too, happy Advent, Merry Christmas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you that the Lord comes to us. We thank you that you came to us in weakness, that he came to us in the flesh, that your son became a baby, 
and grew and lived for lived and died and rose again for us. We thank you that he reigns now as King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that he comes and he will come until all his enemies are placed beneath his feet. We pray that you would come to us, that you would come not only to comfort us, but that you would come to shake us out of our complacency, to drive us to repentance, and that during this Advent season, we would truly rejoice in fear at your coming among us. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.